0: Today, I'm speaking to Scott Rayo. This episode is about something that nearly half of us enjoy every single day, but don't seem to know very much about. What I'm talking about is coffee. I thought it'd be really interesting and kind of meaningful in some ways to better understand what goes into this part of my morning. I did, admittedly, slightly go off the rails in this episode. While I intended to go into great detail about bean quality, or caffeine content. Instead, I ended up steering the conversation to a rant about the brand that changed the game forever, Starbucks. Many independent coffee shops looking to compete with Starbucks call Scott for his over 25 years of experience and expert advice to compete with such a giant. Whether it was directly consulting for a local coffee shop or a barista reading one of his four popular books on the topic, chances are Scott has in some way influenced a cup of coffee that you have enjoyed. Finally, to celebrate the new show, I'm giving away a PlayStation 5 to one of my viewers. All you have to do is like and subscribe, that's it. Details in the comments. Please welcome Scott Rayo to the Welcome Home Podcast. What are the the basics for a startup? What are the things you say are the most important? I don't know three to five things that they need to master. They have no shot.
1: So the first thing I say, which is not what they ever want to hear, um, is that really, if they don't have some experience in the coffee business, I wish they would get some. Now I, I get blown off on that about ninety percent of the time, but I'll keep saying it, and I'll honestly, I'll I reject a lot of potential clients who are people with investment money, no experience. And they they see the coffee only as a business. Like, I don't think that's immoral. I don't think it's a problem. But I, I don't enjoy working with those people as much as people who have some experience or have some passion for the coffee. And I'm not even saying that the people with no experience are, are that much more likely to fail or anything like that. It's just I like people to know what they're getting into. And if you plan on being a part of your retail coffee business, if you haven't had the experience of standing behind the bar for eight to 12 hours a day, seven days a week, you may find you really don't enjoy it that much. And, and you may, you know, just because you like coffee, it doesn't mean you'd actually like running a coffee shop. Um, so anyway, that's, that's kind of a, always like a tough first discussion location, obviously is, is critical. I think most small businesses go for low rent, locations because they have a budget and they they kind of see that side of it. It feels safer to open in a, in a lower-end district, but uh, most coffee shops are all about volume. And there's a reason that Starbucks has has single-handedly changed the cost of corner high-end retail spaces in America and many other countries. And it's that they see that it's worth paying the extra rent for the extra volume and then some. And so I would implore most people opening new coffee shops to think about not being too cheap on rent because, um, you know, even if you're doing a great job, it's kind of hard at 9 a.m. when people are on their way to work or or et cetera, it's kind of hard to lure people out of their routines to go to an out of the way coffee shop. And you will make most of your money between, you know, 7 and 11 in the morning. You'll make perhaps 50, 60, 70 percent of your sales during that window. So if you're if you're not on a commuter route, if you're not near offices, if you're not, you know, in a in a spot where everyone going to public transit has to pass by, it's going to be really hard to ever be that successful.
0: Would you also recommend just knowing the trend that they also get online to kind of pandemic proof their business, have some sort of e-commerce where they're selling merch or whether it's actual coffee beans. do you think that's a, a almost mandatory component for a small shop to be online?
1: Sure I mean it, it's it's such a big channel now for sales that it would be um, unfortunate to to just ignore that because the the cost of going online is pretty low. I mean for a few thousand dollars you could set up a, a functioning website and um, you know a couple social media accounts and, and get going there um, and and you know you let's say you have a cafe, let's say you have like a local following, You know, you'll get visitors from other places, you'll get customers who move to other parts of the country or whatever and you know it's it's great to have that option for people to buy your coffee online and it's it's incredibly cheap on the back end right I mean there there isn't much infrastructure you need it's it's not like the old world where you had to spend tremendous amounts of money I remember in the early 90s you know I was sometimes buying advertising in local newspapers and it was you know like hundreds of dollars per ad and the ads didn't really work you know they they weren't that effective whereas you know if you're if you're clever with e-commerce or social media you know you might be able to build a following and get a a lot of business for a little bit of sweat equity, but virtually no cost.
0: One of the weird things that I live for, I make music and during my like high school experience, I watched CDs go extinct and then iTunes come up and now it's all streaming. So I've seen these worlds kind of change right next to me and very fast. One thing that I wonder since we brought up Starbucks is I guess when I was in high school in Canada, I would see one or two in my city and then I'm getting a little older, and I start seeing them here and there. Then I come to Toronto, and every single bus stop there is a Starbucks. So, in your world, and in, in, in the coffee world, what was it like seeing something seemingly like Starbucks change the game? Was it, it inspiring? Was it good for for the community? Or Was it just a bizarre kind of takeover? Because I, you know, I kind of lived through it, but I imagine you lived through it in a different way.
1: I mean, I opened my first cafe in 1994. Um, I had gone to university in Los Angeles and had seen back in 1990, when I first started going to coffee houses, I, there was like a boom of independent coffee houses in LA. And then at that time, this Seattle company started to drop stores in the busier parts of the city. And and there was one right across the street from my my favorite uh, coffee shop. Uh, near my house. And they were kind of an enigma because they were making what I thought was pretty bad coffee, quite honestly, but they were wildly (laughs) popular and they had kind of a cult following. And back then they were perceived as like a cutting edge company when it came to quality. And that reputation was something they earned a long time ago, but then people kept seeing them that way, even though they were slowly compromising on quality for the sake of growth over over time. Right. And, you know, I, I think all of us realized that they were we were all of two minds, right? They were great for the industry, and they were terrible for us for 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 us and the industry in some ways. Like they were great for the industry because they uh, got the word out. They converted a lot of people to specialty coffee. They pushed the the margins when it came to pricing. And they taught a lot of us like how aggressive you could be with pricing so that you could actually make a living. And so they they opened a lot of doors. On the other hand, they promoted this incredibly dark roast that most of us were very turned off by. And they were a marketing machine and a real estate machine more than a coffee quality machine. And that was disappointing because they were training people to to like something that we all thought like we had to sort of like untrain people over time to to win them over. So it was, it was definitely like, you know, very good and very bad at the same time.
0: Did Starbucks in a way almost change the taste buds of the average North American? It, it kind of is that is that accurate to say that they created a standard where someone drinks a cup of, of Starbucks? and that's their standard, then they go to the mom and pop place, which might get a better review from someone like you. And just because the taste is different, they'll think it's somehow less than
1: yeah, uh, yeah, Starbucks. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's, there's a huge swath of the country and, and people in many other countries where that very roasty kind of bitter, dark flavor, they associate with coffee Right. And, and when I remember in, in San Francisco, one of one of the first third wave or, or specialty, uh, light roasters to pop up was a company called Ritual and Ritual roasted exceptionally light and San Francisco was a city that had had Starbucks and and a local chain called Pete's for for decades and people there just routinely drank the darkest coffee in America and Ritual was so strange because they opened this incredibly light roasted you know coffee coffee shop roastery in San Francisco and and you know, it was so much more acidic than anything anybody had seen in that city before. And, and so there was these two extremes happening and that, and that ended up playing out all over the place where people were trained on the Starbucks Pete's model. They love this bitter, dark stuff. They were used to adding milk and sugar to their coffee to, to balance out the bitterness. And then these shops were opening up that were offering what people were considering like very sharp or sour coffee. Um, and it took a long time for that to play out where, the people roasting really light maybe adapted a little bit and avoided sourness a little bit over time. And then consumers sort of got used to the level of acidity in the coffee and started to enjoy it. But it, it took literally decades for us to sort of train the average consumer to uh, adjust their palate and appreciate the acidity.
0: Would you say that Starbucks brilliance was their branding or was it just a real estate? Was it just McDonald's? It was all about prime real estate or did they brand that we are oh, the North American cup of coffee?
1: You know, they are brilliant on so many levels and just ironically, <laughs> one of those levels isn't coffee quality or coffee making or coffee wow. roasting, but they're they're brilliant at real estate. They're brilliant at branding. They're brilliant at um. Getting their customers attached, like they're part of a special club. It, the club happens to have a hundred million people in it, but people feel like it's exclusive, right? So, for instance, you know, if you notice their very strange system of ordering, you know, like I want to, you know, venti decaf, nonfat, blah 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 blah. Like Starbucks literally created a format for that ordering for their baristas, like twenty some odd years ago, and then taught it to their customers once they knew, once they realized that the customers were kind of liking to be in the know. And then the customers felt like they belonged even more because they knew the Starbucks ordering system and they knew exactly how to say their order properly. So, you know, they were doing such good things in terms of getting their customers to be attached to their brands and their methods. And that made it very hard for smaller companies to compete with. And, and still to this day, shops that are making much better coffee than Starbucks does on average are not as busy as the neighboring Starbucks. So even though third wave coffee has grown, people have gotten used to lighter and better coffee, Starbucks is still winning in terms of numbers.
0: Is it fair to say that they've done a pretty incredible job of training staff? Because that's one thing that you, you walk into and you think, at least from a customer service standpoint, from someone who doesn't know what's going on, it seems like they've done a pretty incredible job with speed and friendliness and, and getting things going. So are they a success in terms of training? Um, or is it more about just being really happy and upbeat, and they don't really train too much about actually making the cup?
1: Right. I, I I don't want to be pedantic here. I I think though it's more about their systems than the training. In other words, they're fast not because their staff are always so fast, but because they have automated espresso machines, and they use that plus what we call batch brew, like machines that make you know large quantities of coffee at one time. And so, a great deal of the beverages bought at Starbucks are. Made almost automatically by machines, more so than like in a typical third wave coffee shop where the baristas tend to put in more time into each aspect of making the drink. So nothing against the Starbucks staff, but you know the system itself makes it faster. Um, you know because because there's um, fewer steps to go through, etc. You know to to make a given beverage on average at Starbucks. Uh, but they are they are friendly and they are. They are, on average, probably giving better service than a lot of mom and pop shops because they have some standards for that that you know they've they've done a good job of sticking to.
0: I'm going to apologize. This is my last Starbucks question to everybody. I'm just I'm fascinated with that monster that has become starbucks. i've I've read the book on the founder, and I find it really, really interesting. It kind of reminds me of the book also um, talking about uh, the McDonald's s- story as well but for the average consumer that is just walking down queen street west here in toronto and they got a starbucks and there's a mom-and-pop shop it's pretty clear the difference for the most part in a place like toronto but how does someone in the middle of canada in the prairies or middle america um not in a big city how do you distinguish those two brands? How how do you really compete? Do you say we're not competing? We're just different? Or do you try to tell that that uh, business to compete in unique ways?
1: Well, I think, you know, we have advantages and disadvantages, and we have to take advantage of what we can, right? So if you're a mom and pop, on your side, you have uh, personal service, right? Like you, you, as much as we might say Starbucks service is good, in many ways, it's still corporate. It's still uh, very uniform, very robotic in certain ways. Not to say that the people work there are robotic, but it's more like the systems and the, everyone's wearing the green outfit and, and whatever. It's all a little bit too corporate for some of us. Um, as a small company, you know you can you can participate in local events, support local charities. You can uh, offer better coffee, of course. You can uh, personalize your shops a lot. Like Starbucks, you know, has made certain choices in terms of location, ambiance. Systems, etc., and you can say what needs aren't being met by people. Maybe, maybe some people want to shop with more seating uh, than their Starbucks offers. Maybe people want to shop where uh, there isn't thirty thousand possible ways to order beverage, but they want like a very focused, high quality beverage experience. Um, you know, who knows? There's a, there's a million things you can do to differentiate yourself from Starbucks. I mean, I, I say this just as just to be instructive, not to not to say like, oh, look, I did a great job or something, but when I had my first shop in the nineties, after I was open for four years, um, Starbucks opened, um, one block away from me, in a in a far more visible superior location. And this was a town of 30,000 people with one traffic light. Okay. So it was a pretty small place, but we, we served well over a thousand people a day. So that was a substantial portion of the town. And three years later, um, we were still doing three times the volume of that Starbucks. Wow. Wow. And really what it came down to was we did a better job of making people happy and we made much higher quality products than they did. So it can be done. um, And, you know, I think you just have to be incredibly hardcore about what are my advantages and how do I exploit those?
0: On a personal level, what is going through your head when you have your baby, your coffee shop, and you find out this this big mean franchise is is right down the street. What's just going through your head? Does it motivate you? Does it concern you? Um, do you make any changes? What's what's the feeling when you see that Starbucks sign?
1: It was it was motivating and concerning. I mean, on, on the one hand, uh, putting them there in no way made me richer, right? Um, even though I was on a growth trajectory and doing a good job and everything was fine, uh, I wasn't gonna be better off having them down the street. I don't care what people say about that. It just wasn't the case here, you know, Uh, but it was also incredibly motivating. So I'll tell you a funny, a funny story. Um, this guy who was like their regional director or whatever his title was, um, you know, tells me, um, oh, you know, there, there's plenty of room for both of us in this town. And I just looked at him. I was like, There's one traffic light. Are you you crazy? There is definitely not enough room for us. And I I apologize, but like you never should have come here because you you don't know what you're up against. Like you, you know, they they walked in with uh, their typical arrogance and into a town that was fiercely devoted to doing things locally. And I think that, you know, that combined with our efforts, they never succeeded um and you know i told the guy i was like cuz i told him a year before like he had kind of been scooping out the town i was like i was like if you open here you will it will be a mistake there is not room for both of us and then he then he came and opened and he was like oh there's plenty of room and i was like no you're wrong actually um and and there wasn't and um you know but uh in most of those situations they do well like eventually after i sold my business the next owner kind of didn't really care much about the retail business and and eventually starbucks did reasonably well there Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you, in our case, like we had the advantage of being supported by locals and fulfilling the needs of the locals and sticking with that was great, you know?
0: Awesome. Is it, is it a myth when I read that Starbucks is a North American phenomenon where they don't necessarily have the McDonald's, uh, footprint globally? Is that, is that a myth or is this mostly a North American thing?
1: Um, You know, I haven't looked at the numbers in the last couple of years, but I know maybe like three years ago, I think they had about 30,000 stores and literally 50 percent in America, 50 percent in the rest of the world. I'm assuming that since then that their international growth has been much higher than their American growth. So I would assume that now they're at like 60, 40 or something like that international to U.S. So they're definitely I mean, I I was just in contact with some people in China and they were saying like, oh, that they, you know, they go to the Starbucks near them. and, And some people I know in Russia you know, when they go for coffee, they go to the Starbucks down the street. And I'm like, my God, what a, what a strange thing to think that that's their choice, you know?
0: So if an investor, uh, someone that loves coffee, an investor comes to you and says, hey, we're trying to um, apply for a Starbucks franchise, we want to open a franchise. What are the pros and cons of going with the big trying to figure out the franchise thing or going independent? Of course, independence probably way more stressful with a lot of things that need to get, but there seems like there's a lot of uh, benefits in in embracing that franchise because of that that brand power that they have.
1: Right. So um, to be clear, uh, Starbucks does not operate on the McDonald's model. So okay. in the U.S. and in most countries, Starbucks does not have franchised shops. They are corporate owned. Okay. Oh, so wow. all the shops in the U.S. are owned by the Starbucks Corporation. I think all the shops in Canada are the. But in in some countries, like I believe maybe China, maybe a few other countries uh, where they were kind of forced to use local partners, they effectively have a local partner who's like the franchise owner uh, for that for that region. So um, but but to your point, I mean, there are coffee chains out there that you can buy into the franchise business model. Um, I think like any franchise, there's security in that in the sense that it's like, okay, you buy into a brand, you don't have to know anything. You can probably get by, but, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, in, in the sense of McDonald's, it makes sense in that the dominant company offers franchises with a, with an incredibly proven track record, but because of Starbucks and because of the high quality, small coffee companies, there is no coffee franchise that is dominant or super safe, right? Like there's. You know, if the if the biggest brand is not a franchise, and if the best companies are not franchises, like you're you're kind of the coffee franchises that are available are kind of second rate in in a from a marketing sense. I don't I don't really know how good they are or who they are, but it's so um, you know, you have you have to really look hard at that, and you have to know what you're doing because you know franchise owners like the 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 corporate owners will do things like you know charge you uh twenty cents per cup instead of fifteen cents per cup or something like that you know for the paper cup and stuff, and it's like ultimately it becomes very hard to make much money because they've squeezed the hell out of your margins and they know what they're doing in the sense of that they're gonna they're like a parasite that keeps its host alive but barely right (laughs) so like they will squeeze you to death and you will have no rights really and um, that's that's a tough place to be
0: for sure i have a a few internet myths myths for you to either uh, approve of or debunk so I've been reading a lot about salt in your coffee. Is that a myth or does it actually remove the bitterness from a, a dark roast? It,
1: it does. I, I posted about this on Instagram last year. Um, I was I was working in Prague in the Czech Republic. And um, sometimes I'd wake up early and have breakfast at my hotel. And even though the hotel coffee wasn't good, occasionally I just wanted like a little bit of caffeine before I started work. And the only way to tolerate the hotel coffee was to put a little bit of salt into it. And um, and it really works in a sense that if you do it just right, the amount of bitterness goes to like almost nothing. It's, but if you overdo it, your coffee's salty. And I, f- I forget what the amount was. It was maybe like a quarter teaspoon or something like that. You have to kind of like play with it and preferably with a little gram scale so you get used to doing it right. But um, it works extraordinarily well when it comes to cutting bitterness.
0: So uh, uh, like a pinch of salt might be able to save a very cheap, wow that's
1: i mean it won't make it it won't make it suddenly taste pretty but it will take away a lot of the bitterness so i mean i think you know even if you love starbucks that that's totally fine starbucks is objectively pretty bitter because the roast is dark um and so starbucks is a great test go go to your starbucks get a double cup split it between two cups put a tiny bit of salt in one and like titrate like you know a little bit more salt just make sure you don't allow it to be salty taste them blindly the one with the salt will be less bitter. You may not you may not like that, but it's it's um it is really fun to try that.
0: Not a myth. I love it. Um so is there a good way or a tolerable way to reheat a cup of coffee or once it's cold it's over?
1: Ah. Uh, now now I have to plead ignorance cuz I, I don't know if I've really ever ever reheated a cup of coffee. Um I don't I mean of course if it cools and then Gets reheated, it loses a fair amount of quality. I I don't know what the best option is there. Um, uh, I've seen some people reheat it like on the on the steam wand on their espresso machine. Um, that might be a, a pleasant way to do it. Certainly more pleasant than putting it like on a hot stove or something where there's like a extremely hot conductive metal surface to cook the coffee. That would be the worst way to do it probably.
0: About two years ago, I was doing a show in China. And my hotel had coffee substitute. Um, So I wanted to, so I wanted to ask you about coffee substitutes. I think, is it, is it chicory root is the, the known one? So what, what's your take on coffee substitutes? Are they all bad? Um, and is that where we're going if, uh, this whole global warming thing accelerates?
1: I don't know if they're all bad. I don't, as you can imagine, I don't drink many coffee (laughs) substitutes. Um, I mean, I've tried chicory. I I don't really get it. Like, I I don't think it tastes all that much like coffee. I think like roasted dandelion root tastes like a little bit more like coffee. And now people drink these mushroom teas that are meant to taste a little bit like coffee. Um, You know, hey, I I won't knock anyone. Whatever you like is great. I don't, I don't. Are,
0: Are those popular because of their decaf or is it literally because those beans can't get to some regions or is it a price thing?
1: Um, I think it's a combination of the caffeine and the price, um, but mostly the caffeine because there's a lot of really really cheap coffee, of course, if you if you want to go that route. As far as global warming and all that, um, I'm pretty sure that if we ever go the coffee substitute route, it'll be more like um, instead of using chicory or something like that, like currently there are already labs that are working on kind of like I don't know how to put it fake coffee in a sense, like, like basically like lab derived coffee flavors. Um, And, and I think that they're getting somewhere with that. Um, There's a few products like you can actually find some Instagram accounts for some, you know, products that are out there that um, are, are meant to be kind of like a coffee substitute. Um, And, and we've learned a lot over the years. Like I I remember even like 20 years ago, uh, this guy, an importer, I used to buy my raw coffee from, um, he was saying to me how he was cupping coffee and he took a bunch of, of kind of like a neutral tasting Colombian coffee and added like one drop of a few different acids to different cups of the coffee. And it's like so, for instance, um, a Kenyan coffee, which is very prized, uh, has a high level of, of phosphoric acid compared to other coffees. And that's that's part of what makes Kenya taste like Kenya to some degree. Um, and he said, you know, the one the one with the phosphoric acid added he's like, yeah, that that was plausibly a Kenyan coffee, um, even though it was actually a Colombian coffee with a drop of chemical in it. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's always been an interest in potentially doctoring coffee like that. And I think that people are resistant to it, but I think a lot of, like a lot of things, if it ever becomes necessity, people will open their minds to it suddenly.
0: I guess the rise of Beyond Meat and the, um, kind of the lab versions of meat is coming from like an ethical standpoint, obviously. I think, coffee unless it 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 really comes out where it is a climate issue or fairness to farmers is an issue i it's gonna be very hard to get people on board with um the the lab grown coffee i assume
1: you know possibly but then again i think 10 years ago if i said to you hey there are these good fake meat products that are going to come out that it's like meat made in the lab out of vegan materials you'd be like no one's gonna want that and that's a good thought i don't know so um and i think that you know we're in the early days like i i have to say i personally don't enjoy the flavor of those fake meat products but i have every faith that in 10 or 20 years some of them are going to be delicious so it's it's only a matter of time till these things happen and, and it's the right marketing spin or the right level of necessity might make these products suddenly viable
0: so i i'm gonna guess the answer to this but you're probably gonna correct me what goes wrong Typically, in a really bad cup of coffee, what is the the ingredient that went wrong? Is it too dark of a roast, or is it a, a cheap species? What's the the number one thing someone at home will be like? This cup sucks. What is probably going wrong?
1: Um, I have to give two. I can't give one because because there uh, the the two things that are the most common are are one simply that the raw material that went into the coffee was just not that good to begin with. So there there's a, a thought in coffee that you know, your, your ceiling, your quality ceiling is determined by the raw material. So if you buy, remember I talked about a hundred point scale for green coffee. If you buy a 75 point Robusta coffee or, or something like that or a 75 point Arabica, it doesn't matter. Um, you can't turn it into a 90 point coffee because it's just, you know, the raw material is not there. And, and so all you can do is, you know, through your roasting, your grinding, your brewing, et cetera, you can keep it at the 75 point level or it can slide due to low quality actions later in the chain. Right. So the two, the two big issues are how good was the raw material that went into the roaster and how well was it roasted? Because, um, you know, extremely dark roast or, or certain, you know, methods of roasting can, can create a lot of off flavors. And so I would say that, um, you know, if you had a pie chart of what makes up the quality of your cup of coffee, the most upstream considerations, like the raw coffee beans, that has the biggest piece of the pie because it's the most upstream. The next downstream from there is the roasting, so that has the next biggest piece of the pie. And then comes the grinding and the brewing in the water. And so, you know, uh, the, the roasting and the green coffee quality are really the the two big things that are going to be the levers that determine whether this coffee suits you or not.
0: So the average person who's not going to dive deeply into this, what are just the average, hey, you're going to a grocery store, you're going to Whole Foods down the street, what's a recommendation? Is it the roast or is it something to look for on the package? What's like the most basic recommendation for me next time I go to Whole Foods?
1: Sure. So I want to answer this two different ways. Um, One is that um, whatever you like is, is great. If you're really happy with what you've got, you don't really have to change. Um, you know, you may at some point have some ethical concerns or things like that where you want to look into like where did my coffee come from, how traceable was it, et cetera. And you might change your buying habits based on that, which would be great. Um, but for someone like you who, you know, has been around, who's who's had good coffee and and you know, tried a spectrum of things, um, I would say if you go to a grocery store, um be careful about buying coffee that has oil on the beans. Um, not because I'm saying dark roasts are bad, even I I don't like dark roast, but I'm not saying it's because dark roast bad. I'm saying it's because once the oil hits the air, the oils go rancid pretty quickly, and the coffee ages faster. And so you're looking at a relatively unhealthy process. Like eating rancid oils is not a good thing, and uh, you're looking at definitely a lot of flavor degradation. So number one is avoid beans that are oily simply because they're going bad fast, even if you kind of like dark roast flavors. Um, and then um, it's, it's pretty hard to, to talk broadly about what a consumer should look for because um, you know, presumably the prices on the bags have a lot to do with the quality of the raw materials in there, maybe maybe not. Um, but you know, look for something without oil that was roasted very recently because uh, you'd be shocked. Um, all of us as roasters have had to deal with this problem of when we sell to grocery stores. The grocery stores love to keep the coffee on the shelves for a really long time. And we don't want that, but they want their inventory to be easier to manage and we want the coffee freshness to be better. So be very careful, like only buy something if there's a roast date on the bag and if it's the last, say like week or so, right? Like don't, don't buy coffee that was roasted six months ago. And that, that does exist at the grocery store.
0: Are moldy or expired beans a real thing? Can, can a bean expire or is mold growth uh, potential?
1: Okay. So can beans expire? Yeah. Yes. And no, it's, it's really, there's a, if you were to graph quality over time from, you know, from, you know, based on age of roasting quality is just slowly declining after the first few weeks, right? So where you decide it's, it's too old at that point is, is a little bit subjective and arbitrary. Okay. Um, and light roasts can actually last for several months before they taste bad, but dark roasts with the oils showing are going to go bad really fast. Okay. So, As far as mold goes, um, it's very unlikely that coffee beans get moldy simply by sitting in a package for several months. But there are molds uh, that can be um, inherent in the green coffee due to uh, moisture problems and processing and stuff. And so so there is such a thing as as moldy raw coffee. And then those molds can kind of carry over into your cup of coffee. Um, And generally speaking, the coffee doesn't taste as good. If it has like there's, there's a, a mold toxin called okra toxin, which is, which is a, a common point of discussion. Um, you know, if you're buying high quality coffee, it's, it's not very likely you're going to encounter that. There's a lot of people who are marketing quote unquote mold free coffee. They're, they're not wrong, but they're mostly taking advantage of the simple truth that they're, are moldy coffees and then they're exaggerating the risk of it like a hundredfold. So, uh, if you're buying coffee from you know, one of one of the well-known third wave roasters and they're not roasting particularly dark and they're buying pretty expensive green, you don't really have to worry about mold. Despite certain companies telling you like you better buy certified mold-free coffee, they're kind of full of it.
0: I've I've seen actually a lot of ads. I think I know which which brand or a few of the brands you're talking about because it, it does seem maybe overstated. It kind of freaked me out reading some of their blog posts about, you know, toxins in coffee and mold. So I, I'm glad you cleared that up. Fear,
1: so, fear is a great marketing tool, right? Like all they have to do is put that little seed of doubt in your mind. And then you're like, you know what? I'm just going to be safe and buy their coffee from now on.
0: Of course. I mean, mold is a very scary word. We think about mold in our house. We think about mold on our broccoli. Um, so it, it is freaky when you think about coffee beans. I wanted to ask you, your last, it's your last meal. <laughs> you gotta, you, you, you cup. You hopefully i'm brew. not on
1: death row but okay
0: <laughs> you have to brew your last cup of coffee what are you doing are you doing it at home are you going to one of these coffee shops that is a special place for you what it, what is the uh, sentimental cup of coffee and why
1: okay well i mean i i haven't really thought through my last meal scenario <laughs> i mean i imagine i probably don't want to be alone at home during my last meal um but as far as the coffee goes um you know, I, I love coffee from Kenya. Um, there's, there's all different origins where coffee comes from that have all different qualities that, that can be wonderful. Kenya has an extraordinary amount of acidity. It's got a lot of this sort of like a, a crisp, whiny acidity. It's got a very buttery mouthfeel, and it's, it's big and voluptuous while also being incredibly refined. So it's, it's quite an unusual coffee. Um, I would say, you know, on average, I don't want to cause trouble, I don't want to make a fight, but like on average, coffee from Kenya is probably better than the average coffee from any other country, um, wow. and and you know, it really does suit my palate, and I've always loved Kenya, and so you know, I'm um, I'm always happiest when there are fresh crop, high quality Kenyas available. Actually, this this particularly last twelve months has been a terrible time for Kenya quality. Um, and, um, that's been a real bummer for a lot of us, like that we're really missing that because it is, it is pretty special.
0: So I kind of wanted to wrap up, um, on a philosophical, we've been talking about Starbucks, we've been talking about coffee, but one of the big things for me, especially in lockdown is trying to enjoy the little things in my life, trying to be a little bit more present with things that I didn't put too much care or thought into. And it started to blow my mind doing research for this, how many of us drink coffee at seven in the morning, every morning, but don't know that there are two species, don't know what happens when you roast in different styles. Um, so I, I tried to become a little more present, and I think mission accomplished. But on another note, a lot of young artists, especially in, in music or trying to start a podcast, it's very tough to be patient and put in 10,000 hours and become an expert in something. And I just, I look at, you know, you started a coffee shop 20 years later, you have multiple books, you're a respected coffee consultant. What is some advice for the young person that is going to go on a very long path to mastery um, like you have?
1: Um, I love that you brought up the 10,000 hour thing, because I think that most people want to be experts uh, in a few days, <laughs> and um, I think if you if you take the long approach, it's it's you feel better about yourself because um, you don't put pressure on yourself to be perfect right away and all that. Um, you know, I think I think a combination of of buying a decent grinder uh, because that's really like the biggest thing you can do to improve the coffee quality at home. Making coffee at home, looking at a few online tutorials. Like there's a few people with a good online presence, like a guy named James Hoffman in the UK and Matt Perger in Australia, myself, like who, who give like reasonably high quality tutorials about making your coffee. And I would focus on people like that. I would try to avoid the internet chatter because you can really get lost for hours in forums and then walk away feeling more confused than, than you were before you started. Um, and really, you know, most importantly, enjoy the process. Like unless you plan to make a living at it, it's important to really enjoy your coffee, if you're gonna make a living at it, you should be kind of critical and always be looking to improve and, and and all that. But, um, you know, I think it's, you know, I'm very envious of the consumer who can go home, make their own coffee, enjoy it and, and just be happy with what they've got. Like that's, that's a wonderful place to be with coffee.
0: Does that ever affect you? This is the final question. Did that ever affect you? You're drinking a cup of coffee and you're not presently enjoying it. You're critiquing it automatically. Does that uh, still happen?
1: It's a, it's a serious problem personally and professionally because, um, I think this happens to a lot of us that whatever you do for a living was once a love of yours and then some of that love gets tarnished because it's very hard to take off your professional hat. So I know some coffee professionals who are pretty happy to just go home, make coffee and just enjoy it. Um, I'm not great at that. Like I really, every time I make coffee home, I kind of critique what I'm doing and I try to get better at it. I try to think of what went wrong. And so I'm not enjoying it with that kind of pure, you know, kind of mindlessness of like I'm on vacation and I'm just drinking a coffee, looking at the ocean, and everything's wonderful. Like I'm kind of always in the in the professional mindset, which um, I don't recommend. Um, <laughs> it's not as enjoyable.
0: I mean, I used to listen to music in high school, and it was just the funnest time. Now I'm I'm listening to a song, thinking of how I would change it, or I'm watching a live set, saying I would have played this song first and this song third, and they should add this. So I I totally understand where you come. Do you have any advice on that? Or are you still working on it?
1: Um, you know if you can turn it off and on that's, that's great. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, adding, uh, being in the right environment to enjoy your coffee helps a lot. So, I mean, for instance, I used to always have customers come to me and say, you know, I was on vacation in Brazil and I had the best coffee of my life. And I'm thinking, I bet that coffee wasn't very good, but you were on vacation in Brazil. So like you were just immersed in that. So I feel like if you drink your coffee in an environment that makes you happy or with people that make you happy, you can much more easily turn off the critical side of your brain and just enjoy it. Right. And that's, I'm the same thing with music. I'm sure like in the, in the right places with the right people, you're not thinking about the playlist. You're not thinking about the technicalities of it. You're just like, Oh, this is fun. Um, so I think that's, that's pretty key. Um, yeah.
0: God, I love that. This is very fascinating and I, I really thank you. This is uh this was an interesting conversation to celebrate the new podcast. I'm giving away a PlayStation five to one of my viewers. All you have to do is like and subscribe. That's it. Full details in the comments. Good luck.